This episode is brought to you by Aspirion, the lipid management company, singularly focused on lipid management for everybody. We won't stop until every patient reaches their LDLC goal. Learn more at Aspirion.com. From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. Each week, I try to find three articles that I think are relevant to clinical practice in cardiovascular care. And this week, I've chosen several that I think are interesting. One looks at the comparison of the direct-acting oral anticoagulants versus vitamin K antagonists during the period when we do ablation for atrial fibrillation. Another one looks at the comparison of antithrombotic treatment for cryptogenic stroke in patients who have a patent for amenovalley. And the last one is a study looking at the impact of periprocedural myocardial biomarker elevation and mortality following elective PCI. So let's start with this first article. The authors did a study, a meta-analysis really, of randomized control trials comparing uninterrupted direct oral anticoagulants to uninterrupted vitamin K antagonists, warfarin, in patients having ablation for atrial fibrillation. And the outcomes that they assessed were major bleeding, minor bleeding, thromboembolism, and post-procedural silent cerebral infarctions. There were six randomized trials that were included. This included over 2,000 patients, 73% were men, and they were undergoing ablation for non-valvular AFib. Uninterrupted DOAC therapy was associated with a lower risk of major bleeding, 2.3% versus 5.2% compared to warfarin. There was no difference in minor bleeding, and thromboembolism was similar, 0.4% for DOAC, 0.7% for warfarin. Post-procedure silent cerebral infarctions also were present in about 15% of each group. The authors concluded that the uninterrupted DOAC therapy for catheter ablation AFib appeared to be safer than uninterrupted vitamin K antagonist therapy due to a decreased rate of major bleeding. The standard of care has generally been uninterrupted vitamin K antagonist, but of course the DOAC treatments have become first line. And this article really asks the question, what's the evidence of safety? These randomized trials that have been performed have generally been underpowered to detect major differences in bleeding. And this meta-analysis would suggest that, in general, a strategy of uninterrupted DOAC therapy is at least similar to and perhaps associated with less major bleeding than uninterrupted warfarin. But the confidence limits around the point estimates are pretty broad, so making a large claim isn't possible. At the very least, I think the study is reassuring that uninterrupted DOAC therapy appears to be probably as safe as uninterrupted warfarin and maybe safer. The second article is also one looking at antithrombotic treatment, and this was a study, a systemic review, looking at five randomized controlled trials, looking at the patients with anticoagulation therapy or antiplatelet therapy in those who had a patent for amenovalley and a history of stroke or TIA of uncertain cause. There were five trials identified going back as recently as 2017 and as far away as 2002, and then the more recent RESPECT-ESIS trial 2019. Overall, there were 1,700 patients 
in the study of which half received anticoagulation and half had antiplatelet therapy, and the mean follow-up was about two and a half years. The stroke incidence was low. Overall, 82 of 1,700 subjects, or two per 100 patient years. In the anticoagulation group, the rate was estimated to be 1.73 per 100 patient years, and in the antiplatelet group, 2.39 per 100 patient years. But the p-values were not significant. Major bleeding was similar and rare, 0.91 per 100 patient years overall. Combined stroke or major bleeding was similar, about 6.6% for anticoagulation-assigned patients and 6.5% for antiplatelet-assigned patients. So the point estimate for stroke recurrence was higher in the antiplatelet arm in this study, but the results did not reach statistical significance. For the combined endpoint, there was no difference whatsoever. The perspective on this is that Regardless of treatment, the risk of recurrent stroke was very low, less than 3 per 100 patient years in both groups, and major bleeding seemed to be fairly similar. The interpretation of this, of course, is complicated by evidence from the 2017 trials, Reduce and Close, that suggested a role for PFO closure in selected patients that were less than or equal to 60 years of age. So this particular analysis might be particularly more relevant to patients older than that who have cryptogenic stroke, where currently at least the benefit of PFO closure is less secure. So an important topic, uh, and I think certainly one that could affect how we think about management of our patients. The last one I picked was from Jack Intervention. It's a study looking at the potential impact of periprocedural myocardial biomarker elevation related to mortality following elective PCI. And this is a study which was a pooled patient database from five contemporary stent trials and one large registry, encompassing uh, over 13,000 patients. And they looked at all-cause mortality at one year of patients with stable angina and normal baseline biomarkers, and they compared that to patients with and without rises in either cardiac troponin or CKMB with different cutoffs. And the survival analysis was stratified by the peak biomarker levels using a low threshold cutoff CKMB of five times the upper limit of normal and for cardiac troponin, 35 times the upper limit, and then high cutoff values. So for CKMB, 10 times upper limit of normal and for cardiac troponin, 70 times upper limit of normal. Most of the patients, 97%, got a drug-looting stent. And so they ended up with about 9,000 patients who had both biomarkers measured after PCI for stable coronary artery disease. The mean age of the group was about 64, 73% were men, about a third had diabetes, and 80% had single vessel disease. The overall percentage of biomarker elevation after PCI was 24% for CKMB and 68% for cardiac troponin. Overall mortality was 1.9% in the first year after PCI. And when they looked in a univariate manner, patients who had higher levels of CKMB and cardiac troponin after the procedure did have a higher mortality. But in a multivariate analysis, only an increased post-procedure CKMB level, greater than 10 upper limits of normal, but not troponin levels, was associated with increased risk of death. So the conclusions were post-PCI rise in CKMB of greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal did appear to be associated with higher risk 
and not so much with cardiac troponin. One of the challenges, of course, of interpreting this is that it's a retrospective study, and there may have been selection bias in who got cardiac troponin assessment. And practically these days, CKMB is being used less and less, and cardiac troponin, as we all know, is the biomarker of choice. The whole conundrum around periprocedural biomarker elevation has been there for a long time. We see it also after cardiac surgery, coronary bypass surgery, et cetera. This article certainly does lend credence to the notion that very high levels of cardiac biomarker release after PCI may have some prognostic role. But the exact way we should use this in our practice, I think, is still very debatable. So three different articles, two looking at anticoagulation in different uh, situations, the other looking at whether biomarkers after PCI have prognostic value. I thought all three were fairly interesting and relevant to our practice today. I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I enjoy bringing you this podcast every week. And these articles and the journal scans can be found on the website. Also, you'll find our new educational catalog, which is featured under the Education and Meetings tab. And using this tool, you can sort the educational offerings by various formats. And of course, many of these are free. So find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you have a great week. I recorded this podcast on October the 7th, 2019. And I'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.